0: Y'all can talk about all these viruses, and that's good, but you can't forget the main one. It's plaguing us, bruh. Down with the Colonial Virus. Down with the Colonial Virus.
1: Welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Mwambi Tongu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and we have freedom on our minds 24 7. On December 4th, Grandmaster Jay, an
2: African man who is the leader of the Not and Around Coalition, was taken into custody by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The FBI, Louisville Metro Police Department, and task force officers claimed that he shined his flashlight mounted on the end of his rifle at officers on a roof during a September
1: 4th protest at Jefferson Square Park in Louisville, Kentucky. Grandmaster Jay was arrested at his home in Ohio two months after the protest. If he is convicted, he faces 20 years behind bars. On today's episode of
2: the People's War Radio Show, we talk with Rakim Balagoon about the attacks on the constitutional rights of African people in the U.S. to freedom of speech,
1: freedom of assembly, and to keep and bear arms. Rakim Balagoon is the chief of command in the Dallas-based group Guerrilla Mainframe. In 2017, he was arrested and imprisoned as the first victim in the government's secret surveillance campaign against what they have classified as Black identity extremists. Rakim was also co-founder of the Huey P. Newton Gun Club. Uhuru, Rakim. Thank you for joining us on the People's War radio show today. What we see today with the arrest of Grandmaster Jay in his Ohio home two months after the alleged incident in Louisville, Kentucky, appears to be a continuation of what you experienced three years ago. So let's go ahead and get started by talking about your arrest in 2017. I understand you were taken from your home and incarcerated over a Facebook post and labeled a Black Identity Extremist. Can you tell us about that?
0: Most definitely, Yehuwa comrades. Pretty much on December the twelfth, um, two thousand seventeen, at five a.m., I was awoken to a loud crash at my door. Uh, me and my son, and my son told me that he thought that was the military, and that's when we found that was the police. You know, um, they took me. And my son into custody, which they eventually uh, released him. And they immediately, you know, rushed me to a federal court and put me in front of a magistrate judge, where immediately I was defending myself for to have the right for bond, without even having the opportunity to even um, have my own private attorney be present they gave me a public defender in which, as we know, the public defender, as we say, a public pretender, you know, tried to argue on my behalf of why I should be out on bond while pending a illegal possession of a firearm case. And what the government used to deny my bond was that I made a post uh, remembering Uh, on the day that Micah X in Dallas, Texas, on July 7, 2016, killed five police officers. And I made a comment on how lethargic Dallas Police Department were to responding to that. And that comment was used to deny me bond until a federal judge was able to see my case. And that's why I was detained for six months. And at the end of that six months, a federal judge did see my case and felt that my case should be dismissed due to there was a lack of evidence that I was illegal possessing, illegally possessing a firearm and I had full legal right to own a firearm and have a firearm in my possession. So I was released by the, by the federal government with the FBI had to return my weapons and other things that they seized from me.
2: Oh, comrade, thanks for that. You were also a co-founder of the UEP Newton Gun Club, as well as your current position as Chief of Command in Guerrilla Mainframe, which has been seen holding armed demonstrations around the country. So when you heard of the arrest of Grandmaster Jay, what was your analysis about what was going on?
0: I was not surprised. What I do know about United States police and state police and federal government is that historically where you have any black man or any person who has any type image of revolution, they will find some way to neutralize that person and uh, discredit that person credibility. I saw, and that's why I saw that as, I saw that as a way to use Grandmaster Jay as an example, just like me. Grandmaster Jay is somebody that's been within the, you know, national news headlines since the 4th of July. And, you know, he's still trending today, as well as within the local organizing community. He's very popular. And the state definitely do not want other people feeling that it's okay to organize a group of people um, behind Second Amendments and the right to defend themselves and mobilize them throughout the country. So when I did find out about Grandmaster Master Jay um, being arrested, I knew that they was making the example of him for the masses to be discouraged from the culture of revolution.
2: Ooh, thanks for that. As we noted earlier, you were arrested under the FBI designation of being a Black identity extremist. This was a new designation at the time, but it is reminiscent of the COINTELPRO designation in the 1960s of what was then called Black Nationalist Hate Groups that targeted Black organizations from the Panthers to Dr. King. What do you know about the Black Identity Extremist designation? And what does it mean for the rights of Black people to organize in our own interests? Well, what
0: I do know about the Black Identity Extremist Um, When you read the memo, it's very broad. So, you know, any black person that seems not to be too patriotic about America's history and Americans' current conditions, and who maybe identify as something other than American and that has dark skin, could be considered as a black identity extremist. Also, as we do know, black identity extremists is pretty much. Well, as I say, you know, Quarantel Pro 2.0. But, you know, even to say 2.0, I, I feel like that's even an understatement. I feel like that Quarantel Pro is more broad than we may think it is. I, I believe the same motive of arresting Jam Master Jay is the same motive that they have when they arrest black rappers who, you know, travel the country and who have influence over the youth, even though that influence may not be a revolutionary influence, but it's some form of influence. And as we know that the Cointelpro Pro was designed to stop the rise of a black messiah. You know, it didn't say a politically correct rise, but it just said a rise of a black messiah. And so I feel that Cointelpro. Pro functions in different ways. I feel like Quintel Pro functions in the NFL in the way Colin Kaepernick, you know, was uh, blackballed by the league. I I feel that it's very broad, but to bring it back to organizers and the movement, you know, it's very alive today. Uh, We've seen it with myself, Jam Master Jay. We've seen it with the brother Ali in St. Louis, Missouri, during the whole Mike Brown protests. The feds, they put a bogus charge on him stating that he was trying to blow up the arches. And this guy was just like, you know, 22 years old, you know, just a young, aspiring new Black Panther. So, you know, I'm not surprised at this. This is something that's historical. This has been a pattern, you know, no matter who's the attorney general, no matter who's the director of the FBI, you know, no matter who, what state that the police is in, what county, what city, what district. You know, one thing we do know is that pigs will always try to rule and dominate and control the masses, especially through intimidation, the same intimidation that they use on the Panthers. No matter if it was the 41st and Central shootout in LA or what happened to Chairman Fred Hampton in Chicago and uh, Mark Clark, Defense Captain Mark Clark, you know, it's the same concept that's going on today. They they want to disorganize, disarm our community, and they want to be able to, any potential leaders that may influence any type cult-like following, they would like to neutralize it immediately.
2: But yeah, uh, thanks for that, comrade, because One thing that you noted was about the attack on hip-hop, and I really think that that was actually a a very good observation because as a part of what we call the counterinsurgency, as you know, uh, against the African Revolution, uh, there also exists a war of ideas. So as you know, Pro isn't just a certain set of programs to take down the Panthers in the 1960s or something like that, but instead it's a it's a larger campaign of counterinsurgency and within that campaign, we actually have a war of ideas, there are psyops, there are things like that. So I think as you know, on this show, we've done some episodes on hip hop and not all of the... Hip hop of the, say, the 1990s and the 80s was revolutionary, but it at least was an expression of African working class identity in opposition to the hegemony of the uh, settler colonial capitalist state. So it's not a coincidence that at the same time that we saw the ramping up of incarceration, the ramping up of these sort of deadly shootings of unarmed African men and women, that we saw the congressional hearings on gangster rap or something like that, really as a way to stamp out any criticism of the police state and in some ways even sort of push towards a much more African cultural production that's celebratory of capitalism and things like that. So I think that you uh really are spot on for that observation. Thank you.
0: Well thank you. I'm glad that you, you know, t- referenced the nineties, you know, you know, one of the most popular assassinations that, you know, we can talk about, you know, is Tupac Shakur. Even how that whole situation went down and how the police just Las Vegas police and LA police refused to really just cooperate with the investigation and they did not want to provide the community any you know clarity or transparency and even today you know now this brother may not you know have the same matches as tupac but even um the rapper from brooklyn new york casanova he just got arrested by the fbi for things that he was involved in and As you see that, especially in places like New York and L.A., they have particular task force that follow rappers around. We all know about the hip hop police. So if rappers who rap about fracticide, selling drugs and things that help the prison industrial complex expand, and if they're following them around, arrested the them because they may potentially become a threat down the line. You can imagine what they'll do with a guy like Grandmaster J. You you imagine what they would do with a lot of organizers that's out there. I was being followed in surveillance for years, you know, in which I wasn't surprised when I found out. But as you know, it wasn't like the cliche surveillance that we're taught to expect, you know, like some agent, some person that looks like us that was around and observing and giving information. In 2020, they don't have to put insert a plant or agent these days. They technology is their agent. Technology was not advanced in the seventies. And so please understand that when I pass by the FBI buildings in different states, they're very big. You know they have a lot of floors. It's like a town of its own with big NASA-looking satellites on top of the buildings, numerous satellites like that. So just understand that we all can be being monitored and surveillance, and potentially arrested if they see seize the opportunity to be able to arrest us and make it look somewhat legitimate.
1: Um, I, I just wanted to ask, um, when you said that you found out that you were being monitored, um, did you find out when when you were arrested? Was there like some documentation that you've seen that, you know?
0: Well, yes, I, it was confirmed when I was arrested, but I initially kind of got wind maybe a week before I got arrested. Before I got arrested, I flew to Detroit and, you know, had a training and a meeting up there with comrades on self-defense and when I flew to Detroit, you know, I checked my firearm in, I checked the bag under the plane. And you know, once I arrived to Detroit, the airport did not have my luggage at all. I found that to be kind of funny, especially them knowing that I have a firearm that's checked in properly with my luggage. And then all of a sudden, you know, my bag disappeared. So, you know, that was very suspect and I was not going to be surprised if I would have been, you know, shot at while I was in Detroit because, you know, I did find that to be ironic. So my comrades just, you know, kind of beefing up the security, but I didn't receive my bag until two days after I arrived home. And it was ironic that the airline called me and asked me, you know, they apologized refunded me my money and asked me. Is it okay if they deliver it to my address? And, you know, I was like, yeah, sure. Because, you know, I was, you know, parenting Buddha at the time. You know, I had a lot going on. So it was just going to free things up to help my homework and to get people to practices. So when they delivered it, they delivered it pretty late. And I found that I found that to be kind of odd. It was like, you know, 10, 11 o'clock. And, you know, I remember the guy, when he gave me the gun you know, the look that he gave me on his face. And I I could just remember that look like, you know, it just something wasn't right, but I got the gun, closed the door, you know, went about my day. And when I was arrested and in court, I found out that I was on, you know, the, the FBI terrorist watch list and um also the federal agent that was assigned to me he testified a little bit of his activity of surveillance to me
1: thanks for thanks for explaining that and since we bringing it to dallas we wanted to ask you about dallas what are the living conditions for african people out there and what was it that prompted you to begin organizing out there
0: what prompted me was you know, becoming politically educated around the time of 2007. That year, Obama was, you know, running for president. And by him being a African man, you know, running for president, it made me have immediate big interest for politics. And so, you know, I used to listen to his speeches. You know words that I, you know, when he used pretty much, you know, political jargon, things that I didn't comprehend. I always, you know, wrote them down, researched the words so I can fully comprehend them. And you know, just studying politics led me into counterpolitics. And you know, once I started studying um, counterpolitic movements here in America and abroad, I became very connected and I understood you know, counter politics to, you know, capitalism and learning about the Black Panthers, um, listening to Chairman Molly, and, you know, reading other books and watching other documentaries, you know, just hiding my consciousness. So... At that time, I was living in Memphis, and I was involved in, you know, working with nonprofit, 50 50C3s, and things of that nature. Um, I was ready to transition back to Dallas, and when once I got back to Dallas, ironically, um, the chairman of my organization, Gorilla Mainframe, me and him, we grew up together. We've been knowing each other since toddler age. And so, you know, we kind of reunited when I got to Dallas, and, you know, he was telling me about the you know, the good works they was doing with their different programs with the people lunch counter program, the political education program, food, clothes, and shelter program. So, you know, I definitely wanted to get involved. And, you know, once I got involved, you know, I learned, you know, I became more politically educated. That's when I was introduced into different African socialists, you know, like Kwame Nkrumah, you know, just the list go on, Thomas Sankara. You know, just the different revolutionaries in Africa and then, you know, studying Shay, Chairman Mayo, the list go on. You know, I became more politically educated and became more inclined to understanding uh, meaning, concrete needs. And then I wanted to be able to certain things that I learned while I was involved in the Marine Corps uh, between 2002, 2006. I wanted to put, you know, some of those principles involved in Gorilla Mainframe with the martial art training, the fitness conditioning training and things of that nature, and eventually move on to weapons training and things of that nature. And so, you know, that was something that I was able to fill in that void. And, you know, we just pretty much became a consistent, you know, it just helped move our program a little bit forward and get more people involved you know, because, you know, they felt more comfortable and they felt that we can meet their needs.
2: Uhuru Rakim, you know, my family's from the area of Dallas as well as Northwest Louisiana, Keshatta and Nagadish, to be exact. One of the most violent places in the reign of terror from the late 19th century to the early 20th century, Dallas included in that was a place in which following the Civil War, there were thousands of attacks on Africans. At least probably 500 Africans killed and no uh, arrests uh, ever made in these killings or at least no convictions ever made in these killings. So can you tell us a little something on uh, how it is, how life is for Africans in Dallas?
0: You know, historically, Dallas, you know, have always been... A product of this environment, you know, the good old, um, you know, Southern Dixie type of politics, you know, which today is masqueraded as progressive. Good old racism, which is today that's hidden through bogus masquerading as progressive politics. You know, Dallas is a city. That tries to present itself as a purple city. That's you know half Democrat, half Republican. You know the force, the black community here is pretty much just like the black community, you know nationwide. You know in Dallas we have our third world, you know zones and colonies here, um, areas such as South Dallas, West Dallas, uh, Southeast Oak Cliff, certain parts of North Dallas and East Dallas as well, and also, then you have more, uh, you know, a functional working class and you know black suburb community as well. Dallas have always had somewhat of a unified black culture here, uh, especially when it came to dealing with certain um, racial issues um, historically. Um, as you know, a lot of things, a few things have happened in Dallas, like Geronimo Pratt was arrested in Dallas, um, and that's where he started his 27-year uh, sentence. Um, he was set up by an uh, agent here in Dallas. Also, the New Black Panthers was started in Dallas in 1989, you know, which is, you know, an organization that's, you know, nationwide currently, as we speak, um, you know, you have had you know, different formations come out of Dallas, uh, different movements, organizations, and things of that nature. And I think what makes Dallas somewhat progressive on from the movement standpoint is that due to the mass um, hyper-globalization of capitalism and things of that nature, you know, big corporate companies, you know, relocate to Texas due to the fact that um, you know, it's less taxes and, you know, um, less um, labor laws and things of that nature. So, you know, companies such as GM, you know, left the Midwest and other um, big tech companies have left, you know, the West and as well as account companies have left the East, New York. And have relocated here to Texas, bringing and relocating a lot of people. A lot of people move here from different places looking for jobs. And so um, I know 20 years ago, Dallas was voted for as the most productive city that your dollar will take you the farthest. Um, I disagree with that today. These are certain things and qualities and elements that you know, bring a lot of people from other cities and other states along with their cultures and ideals and things of that nature. And they're able to kind of, you know, break the group think of, you know, most traditional, you know, Southern thinkers and, you know, be able to be introduced to other um, cultures such as revolutionary cultures and cultures resistance. So Dallas is definitely a city Uh, a constant growth. There's always people constantly relocating, moving here. Um, So there's always, you know, activity and there are always people looking to link with
2: other people. Oh yeah, thanks for that. Because we know that, uh, as you note, the uh, conditions for Africans uh, on the ground in Dallas, especially the African working class Oftentimes stands at odds with Dallas itself. Dallas is paraded uh, as a place uh, where there's a slew of Democratic mayors. Some of them uh, have been African. Uh, one quarter of uh, the population of Dallas is African, which is twice the state average. And the median income, the median household median household income of Dallas is about sixty-four thousand dollars, which is about seven thousand dollars above the national average. However, for the African working class in Dallas, that economy that you note has been created has been created at the expense of the African working class in Dallas, who are undoubtedly stuck in many of the same conditions that they've always been in Dallas. So. Uh, Thanks. Thanks a lot for uh, what you uh, laid out. But I'd like to ask you this. You noted earlier that you were arrested for things you said on Facebook Mm -hmm. regarding Micah Johnson. Can you tell us about Micah Johnson? Who was he?
0: Well, we identify him as Micah X because that's what, you know, he introduced himself as. But we met Micah X at, I want to say... It had maybe been the the Malcolm X Festival in two thousand and sixteen. At that time, we a bookstore. I'm sure. I don't know if you heard of the popular black owned bookstore in Dallas, which you know celebrities, a lot of people come and visit when they come to Dallas. But it's called Pan African Connection because it's like a bookstore slash museum slash theater you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you get your Shea Butter, your T-shirts, your Dashikis, you know, and your you know, your Africa snapback all in one place, you know? And, you know, so they was throwing a Malcolm X festival and we was asked to do security at the event. And, you know, we had some of our comrades, which is to go by the name of Brother Shaw, he's a rapper. Um, you know, we, we had him perform. And, you know, Brother Sharp, one of his popular songs was Black, a song called Black Power. And, you know, Brother Sharp performed that song. And, you know, Micah X was very, you know, mesmerized by that song. And, you know, he came and introduced himself, you know, to us and, you know, expressed his solidarity. And, you know, just pretty much told us how he's in solidarity in the things that we're doing and stuff like that, you know. And so, you know, it was one of those things that, you know, we was, you know, looking forward to organizing with him down the line. But of course, it didn't in it didn't pan out that way. And so, you know, it was a situation where, you know, Micah X drove to downtown Dallas and his mom SUV. And um now This is the thing about this, okay? There are are two stories about what happened that day. You had the story that the mass media, the Western capitalist media media was pushing their propaganda of this lone black gunman. Then you had the story of the people who was actually at the protest because it was thousands of people at this protest. And just to be clear... For that protest to be that big at that time, it was very abnormal, you know? Um, And just to kind of give you a history of the protest culture here in Dallas, uh, when I first got involved in the movement here in Dallas around 2010, when we used to protest police brutality, it was like, if you can get 30 people to show up to your protest, that was like a success, you know? And this is, you know... Before the uh, Mike Brown protests and the Trayvon Martin protests, which became, you know, more sensational and started to gain momentum within the protest movements. And so in 2016, that's when we initially started to get the bigger protest crowds to where you can get the protests into, um, you know, more than 100 people into groups of 100 and for this particular protest, you know, it was a very abnormal, large group of people there. You know, we were trying to figure out, like, who were the organizers? You know, because I'm sure you guys know, you know, locally, all the organizers usually know each other, especially if you have a pool to bring so many people out. We, we couldn't find out who the organizer was to be able to pull this many people out into this one place at this one time in downtown Dallas. And, you know, there was protest and police brutality. And, you know, numerous people told us that it was, you know, guys dressed in tactical clothing. It was numerous guys. It wasn't just one person. Um, you know, they pulled up and started shooting into the crowd of people and potentially at police officers as well, you know? And so, um, and as you can tell, if you go back and watch the Micah X shooting video, which is on YouTube, the shooting he did at El Centro, which is at downtown Dallas. This is a junior college in the middle of downtown Dallas. That's where he was shooting at. uh, You can see when he pulls up and his, um, parents Ford Explorer um you can tell there's already something a lot going on you know um just by how when he gets out of his car how he's looking down into the crowd and things of that nature now I was not there but keep in mind these are numerous organizers you know who are my comrades who have given me this information this um secondhand information um So, you know, once he arrived, you know, you see him get out. He put his car and put his hazard lights on. He gets out. He pulls out a Sega 7.62, you know, carbine rifle, as well as his um, black jacket. He put that on. And then, you know, you see him kind of looking to the crowd and, you know, kind of, you know, pulls out his gun casually and takes aim and you see him, you know, fire at somebody, you know, on ground level. And then you can tell he was engaged because, you know, he immediately um, took cover and he continued to keep engaging the different officers and you can see the different officers trying to move in and outflank him, And one particular um, transit officer was got pretty close to him and that was the guy that um, the viral video of him, you know, coming across, coming from around the pillar and flanking the guy, close range and, you know, shooting him maybe five or six times, killing him, you know. And so, um, you know, of course, he was forced to shoot his way in inside the college, which was vacant. And he went upstairs and he was able to, Getting himself cornered in to where he can, you know, have cover. And, you know, Dallas Police Department responded by sending a robot with a bomb to blow him up, you know. And a lot, of course, with after that happened, you know, they pushed this narrative that, you know, that he, you know, talked to negotiators and expressed that he disagreed with Black Lives Matter and that he only wanted to kill white cops which we don't know if that's true or not you know but that's pretty much the narrative of the whole situation
1: you are listening to the people's war radio show produced by w bpu black power 96.3 fm in st petersburg florida our guest today is rakim balagoon who rakim
2: Black radical historians have noted that the 2nd Amendment was created to arm white citizens in defense of the US settler colonial state against the threat of African and indigenous rebellion. However, Africans have always defended the right to self-defense as a democratic right of the African working class. Can you speak on the importance of Africans exercising this democratic right?
0: Well, it's definitely very important and not only is it important, but it is very natural for us to be able to defend ourselves. Any organism that we know of, you know, have some form of defense, no matter if it's evade or, you know, counter, but it will defend itself. Um, it's black people who are, you know, stuck and forced to stay you know, within the hells of the United States of America, it's very important that we're able to defend ourselves. We must defend ourselves from the state, the the same state that, you know, killed our ancestors and continued to kill our youth and our working class African people today. Um, And not only due to that very same state causes our people to go without, and it causes our people to have to resort into killing each other as a way of surviving capitalism. So, you know, when you when we live in a condition like that, uh, we're dealing with horizontal oppression and vertical oppression. At the same time, it's very important that we defend ourselves and we must maintain a culture of self-defense, you know, and we must defend ourselves by any means necessary. Uh, being able to defend ourselves will help, um, establish some form of integrity in our community, some type of courage, and things that I, in that nature. And you know that's why I salute the different gun club, the different um, organizations that promote you know Second Amendment rights amongst the people, um, making sure that they're educated on their rights and the local, state, and federal legislations, as well as uh, focusing on you know mastering that firearm. Um, focusing on, you know, the, the four safety rules uh, of having to safely own a firearm and to be able to use it properly if you ever have to neutralize a potential threat. Um, if we arm the right people with this right mindset in our community, then we can be able to, um, you know, be able to patrol our own community. So it's very important that you know, African people and all African people, uh, you know, the pan-African community must take on a culture of self-defense because we, uh, we live in a world that's very hostile to us. It's, it's hostile to us for no reason. You know, we have, you know, we have capitalism that come and, you know, spreads and divide our communities and create things such as street gangs and, and crime and things of that nature. You know, we have racists, no matter if it's the state or somebody um, who's functioning under the ideology of the state as an individual, um, you know, performing racist acts on us. You know, if we know and it's definitely evident that a black person life does not matter, it's definitely evident that, um, you know, our life could be taken at pure immunity at any time by the state and so therefore this is a state that we cannot trust the people that we trust to protect us are the same people who are brutalizing us and as long as that's the situation we must take on a very serious culture of self-defense by any means necessary
1: uhuru uhuru yeah chairman O'Malley uh teaches us that you know um africans are attacked because capitalism itself was started by the first attack on Africa. So as long as, you know, as, long as this capitalist, colonialist system remains, you know, African people will always have to be on the bottom. So I really appreciate um, your emphasis on the importance of us building and protecting our communities. Um, one, of the myth- one of the myths is that the African liberation struggle in the US South was dominated by the strategy of nonviolence, but we know that's not true. In his book, We Will Shoot Back, historian Akinyele Umoja tells us about the long history of armed self-defense of Africans in the South. From the, Chicago race riot to the social, to, from the Chicago race riot to the Tulsa massacre, Africans have always defended our communities even amidst the insurmountable odds. The full name of the Black Panther Party of the 1960s was the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense which came out of the Lowndes County Freedom Organization in Alabama. And then there was the Deacons of Defense as well. Rakim, I read that when you were arrested, they confiscated your copy of the 1962 book, Negroes with Guns by Robert F. Williams. Um, Who was Robert F. Williams? Can you talk about that a little?
0: Robert F. Williams was an African political organizer, activist, and black militant you know, from, you know, Monroe, North Carolina, you know, he was somebody who advocated for self-defense, especially during the time of hyper-violence, you know, going on during the civil rights era, um, particularly in the deep South. Um, You know, he educated, you know, free, you know, different groups such as freedom riders and other groups to be able to take on a culture of self-defense. You know, of course, you know the the federal government went after him, you know, and um, which he had to go and run. You know, um, he lived in Cuba. He lived in China. Um, you know, he maintained a, a radio show called uh, Radio Free Dixie, in which you know he pretty much you know continued even abroad to organize and inspire. Um, African people here in the United States and abroad to continue to organize and defend themselves. He's also was a, um, a, a United States veteran. He was in the Marine Corps. Um, he educated the community on self-defense. He, you know, went to, um, different churches, different political organizations, um, you know, different family members, you know, um, and, and pretty much gave them something to implement if they ever became attacked by racists. So, you know, in his book, you read about things such as, you know, the Klan rolling up on churches. And you even have little girls out there, you know, armed with rifles, you know, um, you know, defending the community um, behind, you know, sandbags. So, you know, he helped transition a defenseless um, black community to a very organized defense against you know the, the Ku Klux Klan um, down south and against the police as well you know and so he also he struggled locally as well as um, nationally you know he he struggled with you know getting you know he struggled and got small um, victories in Monroe from ranging from you know um, getting a uh, pool, getting access to po- a pool to black families in Monroe, North Carolina, who were um, children, was drowning because they were not allowed to swim in the pool and they had to uh, swim in creeks and ponds and things of that nature that was unsafe for youth and they was, you know, drowning and things of that nature. So he fought for that. And, uh, you know, and one thing about Robert F. Williams, You know i know it's a little bit off track but one thing that i really noted from him that even though he was a very strong militant black man he was still humble and he did not allow his pride to over you know step him organizing it was numerous times where he was you know organized with non-violent people and it was during times of violence where he wanted to react in a violent way, but he respected the non-violent people, and you know, stayed disciplined, even though that was against his own personal principles. So that that's the type of guy Robert F. Williams was. He was a great example, and um, I believe Robert F. Williams, you know, he he's just one of the many who have led the way. You know, I, I think another great example that I like to mention with Robert F. Williams is Geronimo G. Gaga Pratt they're pretty much the same, you know, scenario, you know. Um, I believe that, ironically, um, I want to say I might be wrong that um, Geronimo Pratt may be from Monroe, Louisiana. And, you know, he grew up in a small town, you know, an athlete, things of that nature. Um, You know, he could have went to any college for football, basketball, and track. But, you know, um, he went to the military because an elder in his community advised him to go to the military. And he told him, hey, I want you to go to the military. I want you to learn how to defend yourself in the community and um, come back and educate the community. Because at that time, you know, in Monroe, Louisiana, the Klan was overrunning black people in that community as well with their racism and hatred. And so, you know, he went. To the Army, um, he wound up becoming a, within the elite special ops group called the Green Berets. He fought in Vietnam where he received a Purple Heart along with other um, ribbons and medals and awards. Um, you know, he came back with uh, sh- shrapnel, you know, in his leg and things of that nature. And, you know, he reported back home to serve his community and the elders, you know, sent him out to L.A. to um, assist uh, Bunchy, you know, Bunchy Carter. And so, you know, when he went out there, he met up with Bunchy Carter, and that's when he joined the L.A. chapter of the Black Panther Party. Um, he immediately organized the L.A. chapter of the Black Panther Party. He taught them, um, you know, military discipline, um, weapon safety, weapons handling, mastering weapons. He taught them how to um, turn their office into a fort because at that time this when Panther officers was having more and more, uh, interactions with, um, police officers. Um, and so, you know, it wound up, you know, becoming a situation where he was not at his office, but his junior Panther comrades was at the office and the new LA SWAT police force decided to raid them. And they thought they was gonna be able to go into the office, overtake it, and pull them out. But of course, it didn't go that way. You know, they had the windows barricaded, the doors barricaded. Um, they had they dug into the um, they dug underground within the office. You know, to be able to uh, protect themselves from um, fire as well as um, explosions and things of that nature. And they was able to negotiate their way out of coming out versus the state just, you know, going and brutalizing them like they did uh, the late uh, great chairman, Fred Hampton. You know, so, um, you know, that's just that's just an example of a guy like Robert F. Williams or a guy. That's that's the
2: 41st and Central. Yes, thing
0: yes it happened on 41st and central you know and you know they was faced off against at that time you know lapd um new m16a1 service rifles so you know they was able to hold their own i want to say it was maybe like you know three men and two maybe one or two women at the most and they was able to hold off hundreds of officers which you know the whole community saw that you know, and they was influencing, you know, mesmerized.
2: Uhuru, Geronimo Jijaga, he was, in fact, as you noted, from Morgan City, Morgan. Louisiana. Yes. Morgan, I'm sorry. Uh, Morgan uh, City, uh, not Monroe. Yeah. But Huey was from Monroe. Yeah, and and from Monroe. At, at, so, so, as we noticed, that whole Texas, Ar- uh, Arkansas, Louisiana area really, in many ways, was the center of White nationalist violence uh, coming out of the coming out of the late 19th century into the early 20th century. My great grandfather was in Kosha, Louisiana, almost lynched. Moved to Dallas, so it's not a coincidence that uh, from these areas came these traditions of defense uh, against white nationalist violence, which you've noted. Fred Hampton's family was from the region of Northwest Louisiana as well. So it really is uh like I said uh and we know that Dallas is only a couple hours west of Shreveport. So uh so 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 it really is not a uh coincidence that um you know this revolutionary tradition uh is a revolutionary tradition uh that uh many people of the leaders came from that area and many of us uh still rest upon Uh, all the way uh, until um, this moment uh, currently. Uh, So let me ask you about that. Because one of the people influenced by Williams was Huey Newton. Uh, Newton was influenced by Williams, the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, and even some cop watches that took place in Los Angeles following the Watts Rebellion. Rakim, you co-founded the Huey P. Newton Gun Club. For our listeners who are not familiar with the groundbreaking work of Huey Newton, can you tell us about him and why the gun club was named after him? Okay. Well,
0: Dr. Huey P. Newton was uh, was the founder of the Black Panther Party of Self-Defense of Oakland, California, October 1966. Um. You know, he was very successful of, you know, galvanizing the masses, organizing the people. And, you know, being a somebody who took the lead into, you know, speaking to crowds and, you know, galvanizing the minds of the people. You know, he he was somebody that was self-educated. You know, he taught himself how to read and things of that nature, which he Became one of the smartest black men that we know of, of this time. So Huey P. Newton also advocated for self defense uh, within the Black Panther Party. He he trained his comrades in the handling weapons. Um, he also led the political educations along with Bobby Seale, and of course, you know, he was somebody who knew the law very well. So he assisted the community with the law. He, um, you know, he initially started himself with defending himself with the law and, you know, beating, you know, misdemeanors and petty cases to the point that he was able to assist the community with with their different legal disputes with, no matter if it's with the state, or uh, landlords and things of that nature. Um, you know, when he went out on open carry patrols, You know, he walked around with the law book and he knew the law like the back of his hand. He was very prolific about that. You know, not only that, you know, he was very, you know, bright and witty, but he was he was no coward by far. You know, he stood up to police officers, even to a point where he had to defend himself from a police officer. And that police officer, you know, wound up, you know, being um, killed in action in which, you know, He was detained, and while he was detained fighting that case, you know, he was running for um, political office at the same time. Um, He would be known as somebody that really, you know, galvanized the people, not just black people, but people around the world. He galvanized people in China, Vietnam, you know, um, where, you know, numerous proletariats around the world identified in the things he taught. Um, you know, so Hewitt P. Newton, the reason why we named the gun club after Hewitt P. Newton was due to, um, the, the path to 10 point program that, uh, pretty much he and Bobby Seale wrote. And due to the fact that we knew that Hewitt P. Newton, you know, he took the lead as being, uh, the minister of defense for the Black Panther Party. You know, and so that we wanted to um, galvanize the the memory of Huey P. Newton, and you know, be able to put that energy within a gun club, a gun club that would function under the same ideology of Huey P. Newton, and be able to not only just understand self defense, but even understand concepts as intercommunalism and things to that nature.
1: Some people focused on the armed defense component of the Panthers. But African people have always built efforts at self-determination that included community programs like child care collectives and food programs. And we see this continuing in the work of the African community organizers today. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today is Rakim Balagoon. The response of the U.S. government to armed white
2: vigilantes is completely different than their response to Africans with guns. Take Dylan Roof, who murdered nine Africans during a Bible study and was taken out for a burger by the police on his way to jail.
1: More recently, we saw Kyle Rittenhouse, supported by massive donations from white people across America, who raised $2 million toward his bail bond after he murdered two Black Lives Matter protesters in Kenosha.
2: On December 13th, groups including the Proud Boys burned and destroyed property at four black churches in Washington, D.C., with no intervention from law enforcement. It was also reported that four people were stabbed.
1: We know that the U.S. government is not going to protect the lives or interests of the African community. It's up to us to defend the democratic rights of the African community and to call on anyone who stands for freedom and justice to speak out in support of the right of African people to self determination.
2: You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida.
1: Our guest today was Rakim Balagoon. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to defend the human and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by the African people in education, healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit apedf.org.
2: Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast on wubp.podbean.com.
1: For updates to fight the coronavirus, or to volunteer with Project Black Onk, visit developmentforafrica.org. We'd like to thank our guest, Rakim Balagoon, for
2: joining us today. We'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in.
1: We can't take no more of this colonial. Down with it! Down with it! Down with the Down with the Down with Down with the 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 Down with the